Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the most haunted episode of the uncanny danger room ever in existence. My name is Adam. My uh, name uh, uh, is Jeremy. And we are here to discuss the uncanny X-Men number 144 with a cover date of April 1981 and on sale. January 31st of 19, uh, 13th of 1981, rather. Ooh. This one is called Even in Death. <laughs> or as the cover proclaims, Cry despair. Guest starring the macabre. Is that how you pronounce that word? Macabre? Macabre. The R-E is silent. Guest starring the macabre man thing. Yes, sirree. Uh, And on the cover of this, you've got Cyclops blasting away at a pink mask. He is in the, uh, of who he, he and man thing are in the hands of. And man thing is on fire. Ah. Which came first, Man-Thing or Swamp-Thing? I don't know. They both, I mean, I, I know very, very little about Swamp-Thing other than I think Alan Moore wrote a really good run of it, which at some point in my life I'll read, um, but I, I couldn't tell you who came first. My guess is Swamp-Thing came first. That would be my guess too, but I have no facts to verify that. I don't, I don't, I guess I just assume that DCA always comes first. <laughs> the The characters... I think are similar in their characteristics. I mean, you got you got your Superman, which came first. You got your Batman, which came first. The X Men were Doom Patrol, which came first. Mm-hmm. Although, as far as like a team of superheroes, isn't that always credited to the Fantastic Four? Well, uh, team, I think no, but family, I think yes. Okay, so you think the first team was. Like Justice League or something? I don't know. That's a good question. Which came first, Justice League or Fantastic Four? I think Justice League. I don't, and I don't know the answer, but I think Justice League was probably a creation that feels like a '60s or '70s creation. You know, I don't think so because no? I I know um, that all of these Superman, Flash, Batman, all of these have like their '40s analogs that were like and then there was like the really old old justice league so i don't, I don't oh. know if it was called the justice league but i think there was a team of like the flash back when it was uh old guy flash okay and then superman and batman were the same and that could be it very well could be i am not a dc historian it's like the the golden age. Sure, there was there was uh, the yeah, I, and I only I only think this because of, there was a golden age Flash, and then they when they when they rebooted everything, it was a completely different Flash. Hmm. But the old Flash was part of a team. Okay, but, but I'm not sure if it was the Justice League or just a different group of superheroes. Anyway, we're getting way off topic. <laughs> yes, yes. So, anyways, the Uncanny X Men. And uh, this one here is written by Chris Claremont. It is guest penciled by Brent Anderson with uh, also, I don't know if this is a guest inker, but a new inker, Joseph Rubenstein. Now he, is a, he is a full-time inker, uh, according to the letters column. Okay. Glynis Ween is coloring, uh, Tom Orzachowski's lettering, Luis Jones is editing, and Jim Shooter is still in charge. 
And John Byrne is on vacation. Yeah, he'll be back next issue. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Doing Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight and probably every other Marvel comic out there. So he's not wait, so he's not gonna do X Men next month? Nope. Damn. He's gone. He's never coming back. Oh he, he's well, come. He'll be back for the hidden years. Oh thank goodness, because that that's a really good series to catch up on. <laughs> All righty, so uh, even in death, there's a, a man here. His name is Jock Forrester, and we know, well, of his last name anyways, because last issue we met Lee Forrester. Presumably they're related. Which I did not make that connection. Oh, and now. I actually did not make that connection until it was made blatantly obvious in the in the, in the comic oh, okay. that they were related. I thought this was just some guy in the in who had somehow... I didn't know whether he would relate or not. You know, like last issue, the the couple that was killed on the hill. Right. I thought it would it was something like that. This is just some random guy who would somehow have to do with man thing. What is man things deal? Do you know? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Other than what this issue tells us, which is he was like a scientist or something, and uh, he there was a horrible exper- or experiment that went wrong, and he was enveloped by the swamp. And sorcery also happened. Swamp sorcerer. <laughs> so, again, I, I think it's a similar origin as the swamp thing, but but maybe not. I, I don't know. Um, no, I, I made the connection right away because uh, I, I have read, uh, spoilers, I've read a, uh, issue number 150 many, 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 many times, and Lee Forrester is a, a prominent character in that issue. And so when I saw Jock Forrester, I was like, oh, this must be Lee's father. And then I had to look back in the previous issue to be like, oh, I wonder if they gave that name to us in the previous issue. And they did. So you you did some research. (laughs) Yeah. I looked at the last issue, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That counts as research for us. (laughs) So this man, Jock, he's smoking a cigarette. He's looking at his wallet. He's got his briefcase next to him. And he is here with a prognosis of inoperable, incurable cancer. And, and it's not entirely visible in this first panel, but there is a pistol poking out from behind his leg. Oh, yeah. Huh. See, now, you catch those little details that I never catch. <laughs> Did you? I would have never caught that. I would have said that. That's like, it looks like his pants are ripped slightly, but, you know, if you look at it closer, definitely it's a barrel of a gun. Yeah. Uh, and it's enfeebling him. His, his uh, physical and mental faculties will be failing uh, and he'll be increasing in pain and dead within a year. And so he's here in the for- in the swamp, which apparently was an important place in his childhood because all <laughs> kids play out in the swamp. <laughs> Maybe some kids do. I don't know. But I, When I lived in Virginia as a child, there was a nearby swamp that I actually did play around in. Really? Well, frequently, actually. Yeah, I suppose. For a kid, I mean, I suppose that would be a ton of fun. But now as an adult, I'm like... Ew, it's going to be like mosquitoes and snakes and worms and leeches. I used to go like into waters that were like shoulder high and just wade through the disgusting. I can't imagine it now. I'm sure there were like dangerous snakes wading through the waters around me, but I had no idea because I was just some stupid kid. Got out of the water and just started picking the leeches off of you and throwing them back in. (laughs) Exactly. What is this doing on me? Oh, well. Somehow somehow nothing ever bad happened to me. (laughs) And and I used to do that all the time, just wade through the swamp. So apparently, though, the narration box tells us that the decision as to what happens next uh, is not a decision that he has made, but a decision that has been made for him. Also, 
Uh, it says it on the second page. Jacques does not oh. realize that the moment he entered this glade, his decision was made for him. And that decision oh, right, is right. whether or not he's going to kill himself. Whether he's going to fight his cancer or, or kill himself. He's also a little depressed because his wife died uh, apparently earlier in his life and he wanted to have gone with her, which is weird. Ah, oh, Mary, darling, why couldn't I have died with you? I wanted to. Why now, Lord? Why this way? It's so unfair. You'd almost be thinking like, oh, thank you, Lord. Finally, I can be with her. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> take Just, on that. I don't know. Just seems like a little odd writing, but whatever. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not disagreeing. But uh, Man-Thing, he trundles himself out of the swamp, and apparently he's an empath, and so he responds to emotional fear and negative emotions and... That's so, what he's here for. So that's, this is what I want to know is, like, what would happen if Man-Thing came in? Like, what would Man-Thing do to this guy? I don't know that Man-Thing... I don't know. I don't think Man-Thing would hurt him. Would he Would he give him the strength to go on? Would he I th- uh, cause him to kill himself? Or No, he... I think Man-Thing... Now, I don't know this, or maybe I gleaned this from the writing or something. I don't know, but... My take like on man- my hand job or something. <laughs> well, you know anything. You know if it if that's what it takes. You want a hand job from a swamp monster? Get over here. <laughs> no, I think I think man. Thing- hey, you want to manage my man thing? <laughs> I think he would. If everything were to go according to his plan, he would he would take the fear away from from him. But so now you think that's what he does? Is he removes fear? Right. But now, what does that do? Like, what does Jock then do? Without that fear, does he be like, oh, now I can see so clearly I'm going to end it all, or does that give him the strength to carry on for the sake of his daughter or something? Hmm. But we won't find out because Jacques picks up the gun, and as he raises it to his temple, something, not man-thing, says to do it, human. A patch of oily black smoke swirling across the ground, its tendrils reach towards Jacques, Jacques, Jacques. The eldritch cloud radiating an almost palpable oral of evil. Yes, do it. Do it, human. And that's when Jacques says, Lee, I, blam. And, uh, yeah, Jacques blows his brains out. Not really, though. He's surprisingly undamaged for shooting himself in the head. Is Well, I guess, yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, too. It, it must be... Uh, okay, so so we triumphant, uh, malefic laughter fills the glade, uh, and we meet despair. He is a demon, the embodiment of the ultimate evil, and he takes over the body of Jock. Well, does he take over the body of Jock, or does he just like turn into Jock? Well, he, well, he. I mean, he clearly heals the bullet wound. I don't know. So it's like it's like he's both himself and jock at the same time yeah i don't know i i thought you were right i mean my initial read through of this i thought that he just took over the body of jock and and then went on but if you look at that third panel on the whatever third page or whatever uh it just kind of looks like he's fading into jock's persona yeah and he gets he gets attacked and he's clearly despair and and jock is nowhere to be seen right so who knows I think he just is able to switch back and forth. It could be. Uh, yeah, so apparently Despair has meant, uh, met Man-Thing previously in Marvel Team-Up number 68, in which Despair 
I think defeated him, maybe. You know, I was sort of tempted to go back <laughs> and find out, but I I had enough to read this 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 week. Well, we don't know. I guess we don't know who won that battle, but but despair does say that you uh, that uh, man thing is uh, susceptible to flame. Whatever knows fear burns at the man thing's touch, and apparently that also includes the man thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which kind of sucks. <laughs> So instantly, impossibly, the muck monster explodes into flames. So we shift our attention over to Shark Bay in Florida, where Lee Forrester and uh, Scott Summers are emptying out bags of fish because Scott left the X-Men in a leave of absence and walked the land until he made his way to this boat in which he got a job. He hasn't regretted it. Mm-mm. But now he's about to get into a fight with uh, Paolo yes. over who who wants him to take off his glasses. And he's like, my eyes are unusually. Don't talk to me about my eyes, man. <laughs> <laughs> These ruby quartz lenses are the only things that keep my deadly optic blast in check, he thinks to himself. <laughs> Touchy, your son. And that's when he gets all macho and is like, seems to me you need to be taken down a peg or three, and I'm just the man to do it. Paolo, please. I don't want to fight. And Lee, Lee comes in and says, break it up, you two, now. And Paolo is apparently scared of Lee or just likes the money that Lee pays him. Who knows? But he's like, okay, sorry, I don't want to fight. I was just asking the kid a civil question, Lee. I didn't mean no harm. That's why I raised my fists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, why'd you hire him anyway? Because he's beautiful, and I'm tired of seeing nothing but you guys' ugly mugs. <laughs> shake hands. So as they shake hands, the rest of the crew finds this hilarious. Oh, you don't find it hilarious? No, I don't. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, life on a boat is hilarious. One guy, he's literally slapping his knees. The other guy's got his head cocked back in a laugh. Oh, they're, they're just having a raucous old man time. Well, they must be doing, like, making funny, like, faces off panel or something. <laughs> yes. Maybe they're doing, like, a uh, Abbott and Costello routine off, off, uh, off panel. Who's on first? So... Then Lee invites uh, Scott in to the shanty for food and beer. Cyclops thinks about it, but uh, she orders it because it'll do the crew some time to unwind. So they go in. Although Cyclops goes off into the corner and just reads letters to himself from the (laughs) X-Men. Immediately somebody tells Lee that her dad called and she should call him back pronto. And uh, she thinks to herself, she wasn't kidding. Scott is beautiful, strong, gentle, yet hurting deep inside. I like him a lot, maybe too much. But then I was always a sucker for a bird with with a broken wing. It's like, didn't Colleen Wing feel the same way? Yeah, I don't know. Chris Claremont must have some sort of idealized... Uh, romance what and is is like a caretaker woman and a, a broken man you and i both know that the pathetic man does not get the girl at the end of the day because yeah. <laughs> i think that might have been in our bag of tricks back in the day <laughs> didn't work <laughs> not once <laughs> 
Anyway, so Cyclops reads a letter to himself and uh, hears about uh, Sprite single-handedly defeating some sort of monster and almost destroying the mansion, which... (laughs) Which he says, ouch! (laughs) That segues us to the mansion in which the X-Men are cleaning up the mess that Kitty and the alien thing left. It's true, and um, (laughs) Nightcrawler bamps in after finishing some welding and Storm thinks to herself, ugh, I wish Kurt could eliminate the distinctive brimstone stench that surrounds him when he teleports. The smell is awful! (laughs) I find that amusing. I do find I kind of also find that out of character too. But maybe maybe the Chris Claremont just wanted to remind everybody that uh, Nightcrawler's teleporting smells funny. Yeah, it's pretty much a reminder. But I mean, it's just like she has to hang out with this guy all the time, and she <laughs> thinks he stinks. God, you're just disgusting. <laughs> the professor telepathically summons Angel, so he flies over to the professor's office. Problems, Professor? I've been totaling the reconstruction costs for the danger room, the hangar, the Blackbird aircraft, the mansion itself. They are considerable. <laughs> I need some money, Warren. <laughs> I, you know, if you're Angel, wouldn't you just be like, and? Rather yeah. than this, like, are you hinting to me that you need money? In fact, he says, if you need money, sir, all you have to do is ask. And he says, I appreciate that, Warren. I'm glad I can count on you. He never actually asks for any money. <laughs> and I thought... I'm, ment- I'm mentally controlling you. <laughs> yes, you will give me your money. I thought the professor was rich. Uh, not Apparently not quite rich enough to handle having the mansion, the blackbird, and all of his stuff destroyed. Angel, throughout the years, you've destroyed many of my aircraft. <laughs> I, I literally have no money. I can't even keep the lights on this month. <laughs> the fridge is empty. <laughs> oh, God, what happened? <laughs> My investments. So Kitty comes into the danger or room or wherever they are cleaning up this stuff, and she's got sandwiches, and that's when Nightcrawler and Wolverine are like, yikes! Oh, my gosh, it's her, the tiny Jean Terror. You guys have been working all day. I thought you might like some sandwiches. But it was very thoughtful of you, Kitty. She looks miserable. Nightcrawler and Wolverine are joke- merely joking, but Kitty is taking them seriously. Do not listen to them, little one. Tact and good taste were never their strong suits. So- I am good with tact <laughs> and good taste. I can use words now, too. <laughs> so, okay, Colossus, I can take it. You certainly can dish it out, Lipshin. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no fooling. Of course, we'll have to deduct the damages from your allowance. Should uh, should have to pay. Should have things paid off in four or five centuries. Oh, 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 that's funny. And I'm funny. I should be on a ship. <laughs> I should be on a boat. That's where the humor really is. Kitty is not. Uh, she doesn't get the joke at all. I'm sorry, Wolverine. I did my best. I didn't mean to smash everything. Maybe I should have let the monster kill me. <laughs> Passive aggressive much? <laughs> the previous panel of Wolverine making his joke is, um, he just looks totally ridiculous. <laughs> In four or five centuries. That's It's pretty bad. So Kitty wanders yeah. around outside in the snow. Nightcrawler shows up uh, with a parka for her. Parka. 
says, look, do you mind leaving me alone? I don't feel much like company at the moment. Uh, Nightcrawler tries to apologize on behalf of himself and Wolverine. We never meant to hurt you, Kitty. Kitty says she knows she's not hurt, but she just wants to be alone. She hears yet does not listen. How could I have been so unthinking, so cruel? Did I mean to hurt her unconsciously? It's a good question. <clears throat> a question <clears throat> that will probably go nowhere. Probably not. Anyways. Those are easy questions, says the panel, and they have implications that the young German-born mutant isn't all that sure he wishes to confront. But he knows that sooner or later, for his sake as well as Kitty's, he must. And I'm really wondering if this is a plot hmm. or if this is ever going to resurface. I have no idea. I mean, they're setting it up like it's like it's a thing. What did you think they're setting up, though? I'm some sort of kitty nightcrawler. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> okay. really hard to tell what they're uh, something, some sort of relationship between the two of them where they're going to be where nightcrawler has to confront why he's being so mean to kitty and. It's probably because Kitty's still afraid of him, and I don't know. Hmm. Well, meanwhile, uh, at the bar that Cyclops is at, some of the guys are like, hey, you want to join us for a round of eight ball? Don't mind if I do, Frank. Apparently just at that moment, some sports team scores a goal, and the entire oh, Tampa Bay just tied the Steelers. And so everybody's attention turns to the TV, so Cyclops decides that this would be the most opportune time to practice with his optic beams and remember his uh, spatial uh, thing. Yeah, his his spatial geometric relationships. Well, do you remember that was actually, they mentioned that in the old series. They're like, given yeah, his yeah. mutant... Yeah, there was that scene where he's like, I just have to line everything up perfectly and... Yeah, so I have to be careful about removing my glasses. If I open my eyes even the minutest fraction, the beams will fire with devastating effect. I think they spent... Gently, too much power will smash the table. These deadly eyes of mine are so deadly. <laughs> All I want to do is move the cue ball. And he does, and he, he manages. It requires the utmost control over his optic blast, plus the ability to juggle spatial geometric relations relationships in his head. He manages to sink... Every ball on the table with the eight ball sinking last. And if you look at this panel of all the balls going into the holes, it makes no sense. Mm, I don't even know. Like he shoots, he shoots a ball and then it goes that way. It hits two, two balls ball and is knocked way. another way. You're right. There's, there's there, no ball hits this little orange ball. Where, where does that come from? There's an orange ball and a yellow ball that have some little lines next to him but they don't yeah, connect but, to anything else. So you're right. Right. And there's also a yellow ball uh, direct, directly beneath him that isn't going to get sunk at the at the rate it's going. Yeah, possibly not. It doesn't unless make... It's like, unless it's going so fast, it's like a super tight or wide angle. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Um, and none of these actually look like an eight ball because there's no black ball on the table. They're all orange, yellow, and white and red. So eh, whatever. Uh, I also have to point out that I think spatial is spelt incorrectly. I believe it's S-P-A-T-I-A-L, not S-P-A-C-I-L, but that's just a minor thing. I think it's C-I-A-L. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's appropriate to spell it either way. But that yeah, looks maybe it's both. That looks too close to special. Well, I thought I think that's I think that's correct, but um, 
I don't know. Maybe maybe it's both ways. I'm looking it up. <laughs> Spacial. Oops. Spacial. Space seal. When I type in S P A C I A L, it returns S P A T I A L. Oh, but oh. the adjective is with a C. So the the noun is with a T, but the adjective is with a C. Eh, okay, eh, whatever. Interesting. Then I think maybe he's correct, and I'm the one that's wrong. Whoa! <laughs> Good thing you're editing this episode. All right. So Cyclops then uh, chalks up his Q-tip and says, "I'm warmed up, guys. Shall we begin?" But Lee interrupts, saying that, I'm sorry, but my dad wants me to come over to his place in Citrusville. <laughs> Citrusville. I think that's We're going to go pick some oranges. I'm, have you ever been to Florida? Uh, no. Like every um, other road. Yeah, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Every other road is like Grapefruit Lane and Orange Street. And it would not, it would not surprise me in the slightest if there's a Citrusville. Okay. <laughs> I know it sounds stupid and silly, but like they're pretty proud of their oranges down there. Mind keeping me company? Uh, no, of course not, Lee. So apparently, in order to get out to Jock Forrester's house, you need to take an airboat. Cool. <laughs> Which is neat. I mean, that's, I guess, what you do if you're near the glades. I don't know where Citrusville is, but... I should have brought Paolo. He and Dad are old pals. Instead, I brought Scott. It was selfish of me, I guess. But I feel comfortable and good with him. I want to know him better. I want him to know me better. I'm just going to think about this. I'm not actually going to talk to him. <laughs> it's just an That un- way we'll, we'll never get to know each other better. <laughs> it's just an uncomfortable silence for the entire half-hour boat ride. Lee's attracted to me. I wish I knew how to handle this. I like her, but I don't want to get involved. With anyone. Not yet. It's only been a month and a half since Gene died. <laughs> In fact, I think it actually says that at the beginning of this comic book. So. Even though it took me less time to get involved with Colleen Wing, this time I'm going to take it slow. <laughs> Two months. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they're, they're at the Ancestral Homestead, and it's a big old mansion-y type place. Scott is impressed. The place is painted pink. Scott even says, I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, Dad Dad worked like a dog to give Mom and me a good life. That's why I'm the captain of a fish boat. Pink? <laughs> I have no idea. Why didn't he give her some money so she doesn't have to be a captain of a fish boat? Then when the time came to reap the fruits of his labor, Mom died. He never got over that. Her death left the void in his heart that never nothing since has really filled. Uh, man, I got bored hanging around here, so I went to go get a job. I know the feeling. I mean, not about that last thing. <laughs> about dying. Because I'm sad. Dad, it's Lee. I'm home. With company, I see. You look well, Elites. But a bit thin. I've been at work. Or I've been at sea. All work, no food. Except for the fishes. <laughs> How's we don't eat those. We sell them. How's by you, Pop? Pop killed himself this morning. I helped him do it, says despair that turned into despair from jock what jock no magically turns into despair and hits uh lee um in the head and knocks her down the stairs scott manages to catch her uh yeah uh, scott says let's run let's get out of here but before they can do that despair turns the house into a giant uh obsidian mile high tower 
It re- Tower of Doom. It radiates so malign an aura that both Scott and Lee find their senses literally shattered. Oh, wait, no. Literally drowning in a miasma of pure despair. Not despair, but despair. <laughs> now, children, the fun begins. Who are you? What do you want with us? I am despair. Despair. And I want all you are capable of giving. He's got to say despair because there's an apostrophe after the D. Why wouldn't you just spell it normally like I'm despair? <laughs> I'm despair. 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 I think that's I mean, it's what you have to say, right? Otherwise, why spell he's, it funny? Then he's like, he's like Kesar. He's French. Yeah. I'm despair. <laughs> and I want all you are capable of giving. Uh, when Cyclops's uh, senses clear, he does not believe where he is. He's on an airplane. He's in the back of an airplane. And there's a man in the front who's yelling, and get the kids into their chutes. And a woman who's tying a chute to Cyclops. I mean, Scott. The de Havilland mosquito lovingly, painstakingly remodeled and maintained by Scott's father, Major Christopher Summers, USAF, is a superb aircraft in the hands of a superlative pilot. But today, both are quite simply outmatched and struck down by powers far beyond human Ken. Who's Ken? Barbie's boyfriend. (laughs) Oh. Uh, yep. Mom, what about you and Dad? We'll follow you, darlings, as quick as we can. Hi, we love you both. And so this is is the, the first time we get to see what happened in canon. Yes. With Scott saving Alex as they jump out of the plane and the plane explodes and Scott... Uh, he pulls the chute lever, the chute deploys, but a little bit of... The chute starts to burn and, and then Scott wakes up. So we never actually find out what happens next. Well, so it says, I believe later it's retcon, but it says right here, Scott hadn't counted on flaming debris from the mosquitoes, setting it on fire. And so the chute deploys fine. It gets hit with fi- uh, flames, it, which puts holes into it. And so they go flying towards the ground faster and they crash. Well, they fall, but they never hit the ground. So we don't, we don't know what actually, like, what happens. I suppose you're right. And they, yes, this this gets horribly, horribly retconned. <laughs> well, yeah. Don't worry. I mean, they'll, the, the, as canon continues in the next 20 issues, we'll so we'll see this again and, uh, and again and again and again and again. Uh, but anyways, so yeah, it does cut from them falling to somewhere else with uh, Cyclops in his costume. I remember. Uh, Mom, Dad, Alex, all of it. I remember. Wait. But not the, 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 the third Summer's kid that will get <laughs> retconned into my life. And the Summer's daughter that has yet <laughs> to be written about. Daughter? I don't, not yet, but soon. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there will probably be one. Wait, what gives? I'm in costume. So now he's somewhere. He's at the headquarters of Larry Trask, and all of the old X-Men are dead, laying on the ground with Alex um, hovering over Lorna. So Alex is alive, but the rest of the X-Men are dead. He's back in the Neil, uh, or was it Neil? Was it Neil Adams? Adams? Neil Adams run? Was he the Larry Trask run? He must have been. Yeah, I think he was. And And, uh, uh, the Sentinels attack. Alex and Scott are the only ones left alive. All the old X-Men are dead. 
um, Iceman is uh, lying naked, naked, well, in his underwear in a pool of water. <laughs> and that's when sentinels barge in, but instead of them being sentinels, they are sentinels that look like the new X-Men. Am I dreaming? Am I insane? Those robots look like the X-Men. Somewhere in here he does say that this can't be. These X-Men won't join for a year. Oh, it's on the next page. So that's interesting that it places uh, X-Men 94 one year after the events of the second Sentinel battle of the X-Men, for those who care. <laughs> for those who are dry at drawing the X-Men timeline, you can, you can pinpoint this one. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so Cyclops, he, he does a uh, like an arcing... Uh, blast of his uh, eye beams and takes out uh, X Wolverine or Sentinel Wolverine and Sentinel Storm. And and look- Havoc takes out Sentinel Banff. And Colossus takes out Havoc. And Cyclops turns around and shoots uh, Sentinel Colossus. Even as Cyclops fires, he knows he's too late. This makes no sense. I remember what happened when we fought Larry Trash Sentinels back in X Men 59. Hmm? Alex was hurt, not killed, and the rest of the X-Men weren't even scratched. And it was the original team, Storm, Colossus, the other new X-Men wouldn't join for over another year. Someone must be playing mind games, trying to drive me mad. You ignore the obvious, big brother. Oh no. And that's when Havoc and then slowly all the other X-Men rise from the grave to attack him. You really are truly mad, Scott. Uh, and they're still speaking in their well everybody like sounds like a zombie except for wolverine who's like suppose bob bad by destroying them you killed us you killed us say your prayers sucker it just seems stupid that wolverine is like zombie wolverine still talks like wolverine no i see what you're saying yeah i don't know that's a good point I mean, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, it's a it's a nitpick, but it, it just bothers me. You would think that. I mean, this dream sequence, all of these characters, it would be visages of the characters, but like one voice going through all of them. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. Totally get it. But because none of them really maintain their voices, like right. you don't see uh, Nightcrawler going, "You you killed us, Leapchin." <laughs> well, he wouldn't call Scott a Leapchin because that's a girl. That's all. It's the only German word I can think of. <laughs> okay, you killed us for damped. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it only so they they attack him. But before and actually, I got to say that this bottom left panel kind of feels like a um, uh, Adam Neil Adams drawing. I don't know why, but it does. Like 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 when you touch it. Yeah. Like when I you touch rub it. your fingers across the panel, you you feel Neil Adams. I'm channeling Neil Adams whenever I touch this panel. <laughs> it looks like a Neil Adams panel, but it's not. So anyways, Cyclops awakens on top of the butt. Do you remember the butt? Oh, yeah, I remember the butt. Scott got action on the butt. <laughs> I believe that this is the same butt. And who should be on top of this butt? We've been up here for hours, darling. Time for a break. Cyclops' main butt. Oh, I mean, Gene. It's Jean, dressed in a bikini. (laughs) (laughs) This is hot. (laughs) She is literally wearing a bra and panties. Are you sure it's a bra and panties and not like a bikini? Like a white bikini? 
I don't know. I mean, it, it it's it is this it is the eighties, so I suppose the bikinis were not as revealing as they were today. So Yo, yeah, yeah, it's probably a bikini. Yeah, comics code and such. You know, today this is not a bikini. No, this is like a this is like a suit that you wear to a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the Marvel universe, that is. Uh, so they enter into a giant church, and Gene reminds Cyclops that he proposed. And so they're going to get married. And Cyclops is like, yay! He's wearing a tuxedo over his costume, despite how ridiculous he looks. But he <laughs> Strangely, thinks... he accepts this. Mm-hmm. And he and Jean, Jean Grey start up the aisle. She's still wearing a bikini. Just as he accepts her metamorphosis from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to the Black Queen to Dark Phoenix. We've arrived, beloved. At the moment of truth, you've known me in all my incarnations, darling. Which of us did you love the best? I... Be careful, Scott. The wrong answer will cost you dearly. I loved you. And she grow, she grows giant size, so big that she could squeeze his head between her two fingers. But then she, she sh- shrinks back down and is in a wedding gown. And that's when Cyclops realizes, this this has got to be a dream. I saw Jean die. Yet, she died once before that and resurrected herself. Why not again? X-Men 137, X-Men 101. And that's when Captain Picard shows up. I now pronounce you man and wife. Cyclops, you may kiss the bride. Why is Jean-Luc Picard talking with a Russian accent? I don't know. <laughs> I just go with it. Okay. <laughs> so in the chapel, it looks like Havok is the best man, Storm is the uh, the bridesmaid, and the rest of the X-Men are in the audience. <laughs> Wolverine's just got his like, legs crossed. Get this waiting over with. <laughs> I got cigars to smoke. Jean's power was almost limitless. She saved the entire universe from destruction. Is it so impossible to leave, believe that she could then save her own life? Where, does, where is Cyclops not thinking, wait a minute, the professor's not a priest? <laughs> well, I, this is like a dream sequence, and I, I buy it all because I've... You've, haven't you ever had like a weird dream and you accept it all as reality until you wake up? And you're like, whoa, that was weird. Yeah, I guess. So... He, the, the professor pronounces the man and wife. He says, Cyclops, you can kiss the bride. So he's about to, but Gene pulls the goggles off and recreates the, uh, the, the thing that they did on top of the butt, which was, open your eyes, Scott. Nothing will happen. I want to see your face. That's all. You have a good face. Cyclops opens his eyes and his worst nightmare comes to pass as he blasts Gene away into a bloody pulp. He rushes to her side, cradles the bloody pulp that had once been Jean Grey in his arms, trying to will life back into her shattered form. Then her corpse disappears, the church disappears, and his sobs are answered by laughter. (laughs) Oh, wait, it's despair! I've enjoyed playing with you, remind Scott Summers, now we shall destroy it with the irresistible power of despair. Despairy! Despare. Despare. I forgot that I am a Frenchman. <laughs> Cyclops has known fear before, but this is different, so he runs towards the window and he and jumps out. Flings. When when his headlong flight takes him out of window halfway, Despare's mile high tower, he prays the fall will kill him. But it does not. Instead, it takes him to man thing. I 
He's at the base of the tower. So he fell a mile? Oh, halfway up. So he fell a half a mile. Well, it must be some soft ground. Well, it's a dream. Well, I don't think falling out of the tower was a dream. I think that was real. Well, I think this is all, like, kind of not really... It's, like, half real. Oh, oh in other words, maybe he wasn't actually a half mile up into a tower? Right. Okay. Yeah. Maybe even the tower doesn't exist. Exactly. Got it. Okay. All of this is just kind of a mental creation. Got it. So as he is kind of stirring uh, a little bit, uh, Man-Thing pulls himself out of the swamp, and he's like, uh, he he lives, I fear. No! Despair Ray <laughs> made me feel like this. I can beat this. I must. Uh, that slushing sound, the stench, good lord. A monster. I'll destroy it with my blasts. Stop it. What's the matter with me? Am I so panicked that I've forgotten my training? I never unleash my beams against any less than a definite foe, a definite attack, except for Jean Grey a few seconds ago. But that was her fault. <laughs> I was dreaming. Me. It's heading for Despair Ray's temple. So he follows after it, but first, just like every prepared X-Man, he goes to his bag and puts his costume on. <laughs> so we're, I guess we're back in sort of reality world again. Mm-hmm. I need the absolute control over my optic blast that my ruby quartz visor affords me. That scream, Lee! And he and Man-Thing enter back into the mansion, and uh, apparently Despair Ray is doing the same number on Lee, causing her to be all scared, absorbing whatever it is Despair Ray does. I don't know. Man-Thing starts on fire again <laughs> because of the fear. You know... Um, Will you never learn? Man-Thing has been about as effective as Scatman Carruthers in The Shining, where he just shows up and then just dies. <laughs> well, no, he gets he gets the message to go back, and then he dies. Well, I know, but his role is pretty pretty useless. Just like just like Man-Thing here, where he's like, oh, I'm back. We get to see his extremely bizarre hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, with a naked chick above his head. Right. Ah, good times. That's a great movie. It is a great movie. Uh, Man-Thing is on fire. Um, the demon Despair Ray teleports himself like Nightcrawler all around the room, I guess. But uh, I guess just uh, in the nick of time, Cyclops shoots Despair Ray. Thus does Despair Ray make his empathic foe destroy himself. Cyclops, seeing the beast in agony, tries his best to help only to see the demon appear to teleport like Nightcrawler all around the room, laughing sadistically as he blasts the quag beast again and again. Okay. I'm not really sure quite what happens here, but Despair is making fun of the optic beams. Despair is immortal. Uh, Despair is immortal. Physical force cannot harm me. He's gone. I wonder why he didn't use his fear zap on me this time. Unless... Fear isn't precisely what he's after, but merely a means to an end. His name itself gives me one clue. And during the hallucinations he created, every tragedy was geared not to make me afraid, but to make me lose hope. And if that's so, then I think I know how to fight him. <laughs> Meanwhile, Man-Thing burns in the background. Oh my god! <laughs> Get me a bucket of water! There's a whole swamp out there! I'm on fire! <laughs> Somehow I'm helping you. Help me. Uh, so he, Cyclops, lunges at uh, 
despair and gets him. Apparently, his emotions attract man thing. Despair mm-hmm. reaches Scott first, and that's when Scott tackles him. You cannot hold me, human, or defeat me. Then escape, demon. I'm so weak, and you're so strong. Surely you can do that, but you can't. Your power is broken with me, Despair. I still fear, feel fear, as do all living things, but I don't let that fear rule. I don't despair. And that's when, I guess, his <laughs> courage and strength maybe gives Man-Thing power to... Man-Thing! I sense no fear in him! Only a reflection of the courage and the strength emanating from Cyclops. My powers no longer affect him. The swamp. But he's still on fire. (laughs) And now I am on fire. Oh my goodness, everything is on fire. So Despair is on fire, Man-Thing is on fire, and now the mansion is on fire. So Cyclops rescues Lee, or grabs Lee, shoots out the door, runs to the boat, just to see the entire building collapse uh, and he assumes that the demon is dead and the man thing is dead. Oh, Scott, my dad, he... Easy, Lee, you're safe now. You're going to be all right. Despair Ray, the swamp monster. Forget it, if they're inside that holocaust, they're both dead. Lee and I came too close to joining them. The demon's fatal mistake was attacking me through memories of Jean. Through her, I faced my best and worst of humanity. I learned the true meaning of courage and of love. I feel like we've learned this lesson before and we're just repeating ourselves. Me too. They ain't hear the speech again. <laughs> uh, oh, there's a typo here. Yielding to you, Despay. It's missing an R-E. <laughs> Would have been the ultimate denial and betrayal of that love. Once I realized that, I knew I'd die before I'd let you have that kind of victory. At that moment, you were beaten. How do I know all this? I'm Scott Summers. <laughs> Hell yeah, bitches. <laughs> so, Scott leaves without a backwards glance, quickly changing from costume to street clothes before rushing Lee in, an air, in the airboat to County Hospital there. The doctors tell him she's fine. He's glad. Whew. By dawn. Man thing rises, walks away. He pauses, seeking some sense of despair, and finds none. Departs. For time, silence remains. Then there's laughter. Uh, a strange French laughter. <laughs> so long as there is hope, it must be balanced by despair. We can reduce him for a time, but oh well, there is li- life itself. He will exist. Uh, Akim the Enchanter said that. Wow. It's He's also one of my favorites. Yeah, I love that quote. Uh, it's also maybe somewhat not really important, but Man Thing was burnt to a total crisp. But since he was born in the swamp and the swamp sustains him, uh, and oh, Jacques, and the swamp. what's that? And the house is also in the middle of the swamp. Right. So since all of those things came together, he was able to be resurrected as the swamp. Sw- we build a foundation for a house in the swamp. Oh, really deep concrete footings. Uh, as it has done before, the swamp that is, and will do again. So off he goes. Just like... Bill Bixby at the end of The Incredible Hulk. He walks off into the distance. I think we've used that sound clip twice before. (laughs) It it never gets old, Adam. It's true, it doesn't. (laughs) And there you go. That's that's an interesting fill-in issue. Even more interesting than that is in the letters page, 
um, Chris Claremont is apparently celebrating his 50th anniversary on this crazy book. Yes, that which happens to coincide with his 50th issue of the new X-Men to see print. What the hell is he talking about? Okay, so when I I just thought of a third way to interpret that, but the first way I read that was like somebody made a typo and is saying that this is his 50th year writing the X-Men. And that I had, still doesn't make sense. And I had to like think about it. I was like, well, obviously he, he was he like he hasn't been writing the, the comics for 50 years at this point. Uh, but I was like, has the X-Men even been around for 50 years? Like, who could even possibly make this mistake? No, the X-Men have not been around for 50 years, so... Right, not at this time. But I had to think about that. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, okay, that math doesn't work out. The second is that it's the 50th issue anniversary, but then it's, like, double. Like, it's my 50th issue anniversary of the 50th issue I've read or written. Which also doesn't make sense. 50 issues is like, I don't know, uh, six years or something like that. Less because they were, they were, they came out, uh, bi-monthly in the beginning. Here's what I think, Adam. I didn't put this together until you just said it, but is it possible that it is his 50th birthday as his 50th X-Men issue comes out? Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. But if he was 50 in 1981 and it is 2013, is he 80? You're going to make me do math. I'm going to look it up here. Uh, this came out, you said 81, and it was his 50th birthday, and now it's 2013. So, yeah, he would be... Mm, that's not right, because he was born in 1950. So, <laughs> in 2000, he was 50. Oh. So, I read that, and I guess I'm still confused as to what it what it means. I, I thought you had solved it, but I, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> nope. That was felt really good, but nope. Maybe it's the fiftieth anniversary of comic books. <laughs> he was think about this, Adam. He was twenty five years old when he started writing for the X Men. What were you doing when you were twenty five? I was writing my own comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It's never seen publishing, uh, uh, publication. But it's awesome, isn't it? It. It's. Oh man! If I could get if I could get a, somebody to uh, fund it. Well, we'd be making mad cash. I think it's not been published because the audience for it doesn't exist yet. You're like 20 years ahead of the curve. It's it's so far ahead of its time. <laughs> so Maybe he didn't mean a belated celebration of his 50th anniversary. Maybe he meant a really, really early celebration of his 50th anniversary. I got nothing. I, I read that letter and I was like, what does this mean? Do we get any letters this week? I don't know, but there's a letter about... Whether or not Kitty can speak when she phases. Oh, that's a good question. Which is similar. And then they also talk about how uh, Banshee can't talk and scream at the same time. Well, that goes back and forth depending on who's writing the book, but right. And and how they've made that mistake and they finally just said, Chris decided he can't, so he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Those other people were wrong. And they say that any time that Kitty is uh, speaking when she is uh, in phasing, it's because that part of her has phased back into uh, solid form. Oh, wait. So they're saying that Kitty cannot talk when she's phasing? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'm going to watch for that because now. Her, because her vocal cords are not uh, capable of making sound because they're not solid. I think there's actually a story... 
a long time from now that we'll take advantage, we'll not take advantage, but we'll use that as a plot point. Like speech is made when air rushes through the vocal cords, causing them to vibrate. Therefore, Kitty should not be able to speak when she, or more specifically, her vocal cords are intangible. Right. No, that 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 makes sense. And their argument is that, well, parts of her were intangible. Her vocal cords were not. Uh, she can she can phase parts of her body and not have her entire body phased at the same time. She has control over that. Next issue, X-Men versus Doctor Doom and Dave Cockerman pencils. Did you know that Chris Claremont collaborated with George Lucas to write a series of books? Was it called Star Wars? No, but one of them was called Shadow Star. Oh, yeah, I did know that. Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn. Yeah, I, I, I remember, yeah. They might actually be good if the story, because it says the story is by George Lucas and the rest right. of it's by Chris Claremont. The writing is by Chris Claremont. <laughs> might I remember when those came out and didn't read them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else I discovered? This is totally off topic, but I was at my neighborhood Half Price Books, and there's like a whole series of uh, X-Men novels. Not that they're like part of canon or anything, but one of them I grabbed, They're you know, they're half price. And I was like, oh man, there's like four of them here. And I'm like, what am I, who am I kidding? What? It'll take me two years to read four novels. So I just picked up one. <laughs> and this one particular one said, these events take place directly before X-Men Annual Number 10, which is one of my favorite X-Men comics. I was like, oh, all right, I'll pick it up. Even though the stories aren't related, I thought that it was neat that the author was trying to tie his novel into uh, that annual. Hmm. So if I ever read it, and I haven't started yet, uh, I will report back into my how I, what I think about it. Yeah, so if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can do so by going to www.facebook.com forward slash Danger Room Podcast or following us on the Twitters at Danger Room Go. You can email us at dangerroom at redcapproductions.com or you can visit our webpage at www.xmenpodcast.com where all of the episodes are available. And we've added some fresh new covers to the page so it actually looks a lot less bland than it used to look. Uh, and you can also go out to iTunes and type in Danger Room under the podcast section. You'll get right to us. Leave us a five-star review or rating, that is, or a review, both, if you are so kind. Uh, subscribe on your iDevice uh, and all that sort of stuff. And you can find us on Stitcher. And there's probably a bunch of other services you could also find us on. And if you're listening to us, you've already found us, so it's kind of moot. <laughs> also, you type Danger Room into uh, iTunes, it, you you find uh, some woman's sexy adventures. It's very, it's like some, some woman does a podcast about her sex adventures. And so apparently one of them involves a, da a danger room or something. So we're not that podcast. But no, we're not that podcast, and we're probably not nearly as popular as that podcast. <laughs> but next episode, Adam is going to take us on a tale of his sexual encounters, which I have told is totally disgusting. So you can stick out for that. Stick around for that anyways. <laughs> no, you can stick it out for that. <laughs> <laughs> right, Adam, you're doing that, right? That's what we talked about? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enough of this X-Men stuff. Let me tell you what I did. <laughs> From this uh, episode forward, it's just going to be all about my kinky sex adventures. <laughs> and all the hospital v visits that have ensued afterward. And uh, it'll be twice as sexy, too, because I'm, I'm getting a sex change. So oh. next, next episode, I'm going to be a woman. Sweet. All right, well, let's get on to the... 
additional material. Um, I read Dazzler number two. Yeah, that came out in April 1981. Tell me about it. That it was uh, it was exciting. I didn't read it. So. Oh, the cover is kind of alluring. I've been sitting here staring at it for a while, and there's a lot of uh, focus on Dazzler's bosom. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Anyways, uh, if you'll remember last uh, issue, Dazzler landed a job at the Numero Uno. So she's putting on her her David Bowie ma- eye makeup, and she's thinking a lot about like the events of last issue, especially the Enchantress. Uh, and uh, she's also actually chalking up this whole thought to herself that she actually might have a little bit of stage fright. She's a little nervous about this opening night of her career. Uh-oh. And she reminds us that... Uh, that, uh, you know, even though that Spider-Man thinks that she's like a hot number and whatnot, it still doesn't mean anything because she's not getting daddy's approval. He, she called daddy and said, will you come watch? And he said, no, I will not. <laughs> so she's got daddy issues. Meanwhile, though, uh, Thing and Th- uh, a Torch, they're getting ready to go see the Dazzler show. And they have some little antics that they, they bandy about just in, you know, in, in classic Fantastic Four style. We'll bore you with those details. And the X-Men, they're 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 in the danger room and they're fighting dangerous things, so they must have cleaned up the danger room after Kitty's thing, uh, the other issue. But uh well, that's, that's funny, because I'm gonna talk about that too. Oh good. So but Kitty comes in and she's like, Hey everybody, you forgot all about Dazzler and they're like, Oh my god, we gotta get ready. So they go get ready. Uh Kitty does say that she wishes she could join the full training sessions because then she'd feel like a real X man. So Whoever's whoever wrote this story is uh, keeping up with Chris Claremont. It was Tom DeFalco, by the way, who wrote it. Uh, meanwhile, at Avengers Mansion, um, Wasp and and Captain America are getting ready to go, but Wasp is criticizing Captain America's choice of of clothing because it's like he's from 1935. Beast is there and he's bouncing around like a like a like a dork. <laughs> and then we're finally at the club, and all like the entire Marvel universe is at this club. And they're all waiting, and they're all excited. And then Dazzler hits the stage, and she starts singing, and everyone's like, oh, my God, she's awesome. But right as she starts singing, the Enchantress uh, appears backstage and says, I'm going to settle this once and for all. So while all the Marvel superheroes and other people are dancing out in the audience, Enchantress casts a spell on Dazzler, turning her old, and she starts getting all wrinkly, and all the people are like, something's happening to Dazzler, we gotta do something. But in a last-ditch effort, Dazzler shoots the disco ball with a dazzle blast, which reveals from behind the stage the Enchantress. And everybody recognizes the Enchantress. So they all run to the bathrooms in a very comical scene to change into their costumes. But Peter Parker's <laughs> like, I can't wait my turn. And somebody might recognize that. Peter Parker's Spider-Man. It's kind of stupid. So they all change. Spider-Man jumps through a ceiling tile, changes into Spider-Man. And uh, meanwhile, Dazzler, uh, when she knocked the Enchantress out, was able to reverse the aging spell. So she's a normal age again. She's roller skating around and shooting the Enchantress. And the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and the X-Men, and Spider-Man all come running. But that's when the Enchantress casts another spell, which a whole bunch of, like, trolls and giants and stuff from Asgard or somewhere come into this club, and they all start fighting and fighting. Oh, yeah. 
There's a lot of fighting going on here. They forget about Dazzler for quite a while. Eventually, uh, Dazzler circles around and says, throughout all this chaos, everybody forgot about me. And she says, Enchantress, you're the one I want, Mama. And Enchantress <laughs> is like, oh, I'm bringing the biggest monster in here. And he's going to take over the world or something like that. So she doesn't. She sees a hand, big old hand coming through like a portal, a rift as it were. And so she starts sucking in all of the noise from the room to charge up her light powers. And just as she's fully charged up, a giant monster comes out of the portal. And he's, I don't know what he wants to do, but he's got a gift of doom that he's bringing with him. <laughs> so right before it can do anything, Dazzler releases a giant blast and shoots him back into the rift. And as he does that, he falls back into the rift. The Enchantress loses control over the rift, and she is undone, so she heads back to Asgard. Whew. You would think that that's the end of the issue, but it is not. Dazzler is like, oh, man, my debut night. The club is ruined. It's out of business, and I got no career, and I'm really sad because apparently all I think about is me and my career. Boo. But as she's walking away, a man who's like, hey... I thought all of that was part of the stage show, but then I realized it wasn't, and I got trapped underneath this big blanket over here. Anyways, I'm friends with Harry Osgood, and he is a talent agent, so you should go see him. So, the next day, all of the, not all of the X-Men, half the X-Men, half the Avengers, and half the Fantastic Four give Dazzler a ride in a Quinjet to this guy's office. <laughs> It seems like quite a drain on the superhero population in the Marvel Universe. But anyway, she goes up there and she goes up to the uh, the secretary. And she's like, I'm the Dazzler and I have this guy's card. And the secretary's like, nope, I'm private executive secretary and you cannot see him. But that's when Beast comes in and is like, hey, I'm the Beast. And she, the secretary's like, oh my, I never knew, I knew entertainers kept exotic pets, but this... So while she's kind of endured by the beast, she sneaks into Harry's office and Harry's like, who are you and why are you in my office? I don't have time for this. Time is money and money is time. And he's very cliched. But before he's able to throw Dazzler out of his office, all of the heroes basically that we haven't seen yet are at the 39th floor window. So I guess Storm is like floating them or something like that. Because before too long, the thing accidentally crashes through the window. <laughs> and all the heroes jump in and they're like, give her a chance. Uh, she's wonderful. You want to hear her sing? And the guy's like, this is extortion. Don't you guys have menaces to fight, worlds to save? And they're like, no, we want to hear her sing. So he's like, all right, fine. So uh, Wolverine is like, grab your seats, guys and gals. Guys and gals. What do you ever say, guys and gals? Apparently. The show's about to start. And so uh, Iron Man's like, the transistors within my armor can pick up radio waves so I can provide the music. So apparently she's just singing over some random 80s song that Iron Man has picked up over his transistors. Iron Man shines a light on her and she begins to sing a song a haunting tune of loves long lost and dreams yet unfulfilled. And it's beautiful and there's not a sound. And Nightcrawler's sitting on the ground cross-legged. And uh, Beast, no, uh, Colossus has his arm around Wolverine. It's very weird. 
thing looks pretty bored. Uh, <laughs> Angel's there. It's just it's, it just doesn't make any sense. So when she's done, uh, Harry's like, enough. I've heard my my time is too valuable to waste. The audition is over. Farinlagetti, whoever that is, get my lawyer. We have a sensational new singer to sign. So Dazzler is now a signed singer. And the cost of the new picture window is coming out of her first paycheck. Ha, ha, ha. So there was a madcap amount of cameos in that issue, which I promise you are not in the next issue. I did three additional issues, Avengers 206, the Avengers battle Pyron the Thermal Man who is just an arsonist who was hired by a corporation to burn in the competition but was double-crossed, resulting in him uh, turning into some sort of giant fire beast and the Avengers uh, fight him. He drains the powers of the Human Torch, who has a cameo in this issue. And the only other thing of note in this issue is that the Beast is now uh, speaks other languages when he gets excited uh, in this issue, he speaks French, Japanese, Spanish, and German. And um, I think Wonder Man says, did the X-Men used to get annoyed at you when you did this? And Beast says, I guess not. But he didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, kind of weird. In fact, he's never done that in the Avengers either <laughs> until this issue. So the Avengers win. This was a one-off. They beat Pyron, and the corporation gets sent to jail. Nice. <laughs> so everybody wins. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, let's see. Rom Space Knight number 17. Uh, do you know anything about Rom Space Knight? Um, no. I know very little about Rom. He, uh, the only, actually, I read one issue of Rom uh, across the Secret Wars 2 storyline he was his his book was featured once but it mostly featured uh the defenders i think looking for rom Hmm. so anyways i no i don't know much about in fact here's my funny story about about rom uh do you remember the advertisements for rom uh barely okay so the advertisement for rom is basically like it's like a three panel page and on the first panel it's like a shooting star and then the second one is an explosion. And then the third one is like a giant spread of ROM coming around a rock or something like that. So in one of the X-Men issues, somebody shoots something into space. It might be Phoenix. I don't remember. Uh, and the very next panel is that arcing blast landing on the ground. I was like, oh, my God, this is the origin of ROM. And it wasn't until years later I was like, oh, it was just an advertisement that happened to be uh, placed oddly. <laughs> well, Here's here's a according to according to this. Oh, Chris Claremont served as a consultant on this issue. I just noticed that. Oh. Uh, Two hundred years ago, the evil Dire Race threatened the peace-loving planet Galador. In their homeworld's darkest hour, a thousand brave young Galadorians sacrificed humanity itself to become cyborg warriors, a last desperate line of defense. Though hopelessly outnumbered, these space knights triumphed and pursued the remnants of the Wraith Horde across the universe. Now alone in the enemy's mightiest stronghold on a backward planet called Earth, 
One Galadorian warrior faces his most awesome challenge, the greatest of the Space Knights, Rom. Hmm. So that's apparently the backstory of Rom. So Rom uh, takes place on Earth, or does it? Does he take place yeah, in space? He takes place on Earth. Oh, okay. He's uh, apparently he's just hunting down dire wraiths, which is sort of what is going on in this issue. We uh, we open with Cerebro detecting a mutant and giving off a scream that's loud enough to bring all of the X-Men running into the lab where Cerebro is. Cerebro has a completely new design here. It looks like some sort of spider creature. Mm. Um, Apparently, Kitty Pryde doesn't know what Cerebro is yet. What is Cerebro? What's this all mean? Angel doesn't make an appearance in this issue for some reason. Okay. Uh, The mutant is uh, apparently a pretty powerful one. That's why it's so loud. So the X-Men head off to Clareton, West Virginia. And then we cut to what's going on with Rom Space Knight, who's hanging out with the humans of Clareton, um, West Virginia. He's just sitting in their living room and explaining to them that he's been killing off uh, some of them because half of the populace of Clareton are actually dire wraiths. And Rom is there to stop them from taking over the Earth, which is, I guess, what the Dire Wraiths are doing. Hmm. Um, one of the Wraiths, separated from its people uh, a long time ago, fell in love with a human being, and they had a baby, and that's the mutant that is detected by Cerebro. And the Wraiths of Clareton have been training the kid to be a bad Dire Wraith, unlike his dad uh rom faces off with him the kid kills his dad and tries to kill um rom we see his real form which is like a a cross between a a dire wraith and a human and and it's pretty freaky um he calls himself a hybrid uh and on the last panel the x-men show up and the hybrid transforms back into just a little boy and says, Rom is trying to kill me. And so the X-Men are like, well, we're going to kill Rom because he's clearly a bad guy. Sure. And that's that's where that issue ends up. Okay. To be continued. So who is the mutant, the the boy thing? The boy thing is, is a mutant because he's a uh, hybrid human slash dire wraith. Got it. I, I don't know why Cerebro detected that as a mutant, but... Maybe we'll find out more next issue, I guess. Well, I don't re- know. remember early on, Cerebro detected the juggernaut. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So Cerebro detects all sorts of things. Cerebro is broken most of the time. <laughs> and I also finally uh, read um, Spider-Woman number 37, Okay. which was written by Chris Claremont. And uh, I learned a lot about Spider-Woman, actually, in this issue. The, the first couple of uh, pages... She kind of uh, jumps, kind of jumps into uh, Nick Fury's office, and they have a big conversation where she goes and talk, tells him her uh, origin story. She was raised by the High Evolutionary from the age of ten, kept in cryonic hibernation since infancy. She left Wonder Grower at a young age. When the High Evolutionary became absorbed in his work, she fell in love and accidentally killed her partner with her powers, a venom blast that she didn't know she had. Uh, At that point, she joined Hydra and learned to master her powers. Then she discovered that Hydra was evil, 
when they asked her to kill Nick Fury, and uh, and then she became Spider Woman. Huh. That's Spider Woman's origin. So Spider Woman is a mutant, or is uh, she uh, engineered by the High Evolutionary? Yeah, it doesn't really say. Mm, okay. Um, I don't know. And it's, is she Jessica Drew at this point? Yeah, she is okay. Jessica Drew. Is she Drew. always Jessica Drew? I don't know if she's always Jessica Drew. Okay. But at this point, she's definitely Jessica Drew. All right. I never really understood Spider-Woman's backstory. I mean, I I don't know. Assumed that she was had some relation to Spider-Man, but then it didn't make any sense because I don't think he's got any siblings. So, In the Ultimate Universe, Spider-Woman is a clone of Spider-Man. So that would make more sense. Kind of like She-Hulk is a cousin of Bruce Banner, so. So anyway, we get to the meat of the issue where uh, Teresa Cassidy is hanging out with her Uncle Black Tom and Kane Marco planning to steal Vibranium and then sell it on the black market or sell it back to the government, whichever they can get more money for. I believe this is the first appearance of Teresa Cassidy. Hey, Um, not to totally interrupt, but I'm going to. Um, I just watched Spider-Man and his amazing friends yeah. on Netflix. There are at least two, uh, I think only two, uh, X-Men issues, or I mean episodes. Because uh, you remember Spider-Man and his amazing friends, it was him, Firestorm, Firestar, and uh, Iceman. And so in yeah. a couple of issues, they actually go to the X-Mansion and the X-Men are there. In one of the issues, the Juggernaut was featured, which was funny because he spoke with an English accent, which I thought was hilarious. Like, <laughs> I am the Juggernaut. It was even worse than that. And then in another uh, episode, they – I don't remember who the bad guy is, like some made-up bad guy. But he captured all of the X-Men inside of the mansion and he encased uh, Kitty's room in vibranium. So she couldn't phase through the vibranium because it vibrated. Oh, I wonder if that's true to the Marvel Universe. They I, probably they probably stole that from the Marvel Universe. It, so. it, I, it could go either way because I also was listening and Juggernaut's giving his backstory like, oh, I went into a cave and I touched the crystal of Ciderac. Really? And I was like, Ciderac? <laughs> oh, that's how you pronounce it. But then wow. later on, Firestorm was like, I used to be an X-Man. Or Firestar. I used to be an X-Man and they raised me and they trained me and I got to fight Magneto. <laughs> and I was like, huh. Oh, well. <laughs> the pronunciation of these issues uh, and their lore is suspect at best. <laughs> Anyhow, you should check them out. They're on Netflix and they're pretty campy. We'll have to, are these the original ones? Oh, yeah. From like 1970, maybe early oh, 80s. One of the two. The I first episode it. that features the X-Men, like you watch it and all of the X-Men voices are just terrible. <laughs> it, they just like you. you the, the, the voices do not. I mean. The voices don't match the characters in any way, shape, or form. The second time around, the voices are all different for the X-Men characters, and they match a little bit better. Uh, and Wolverine's in the first one, but not the second one. And he, I think he's got like an Australian accent. In, in not, the, not Canadian. No. So, And the guy that does Colossus in the second episode, he tries very, very hard to do a Russian accent, but it's bad. Because <laughs> I think it must have been like three guys in an animation studio being like, all right, I guess I'll be Colossus. Duh. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, check them out. So, uh, yeah, first appearance of Teresa Cassidy. Um, and Black Tom even thinks to himself, boy, it's it's a shame that Sean knows nothing of Teresa. He would be, he would be so saddened to find out that she has aligned herself with Black Tom. 
So at this point, do you think uh, uh, they're ramping up a new mutants, or are they just creating characters for the heck of it? I, I'm probably. I, I think they're just creating characters just for the heck of it. But I bet in the back of their heads, I mean, they know they're going to use these characters at some point. Actually, yeah, I read something somewhere. I don't know if this is spoilers or if we've covered this, but uh, I think John Byrne was like, he when they created Kitty, they're like, oh yeah, we'll use Kitty and we'll create some other people and every other issue we'll have like the Junior X-Men, but they won't be called the Junior X-Men. It'll just be like a different squad of X-Men. Right, that was from the uh, the second X-Men omnibus that, oh, we, okay. that we found that. Okay. So I'm wondering if maybe this is all kind of in reaction to that, like, well, maybe that idea has some wings. It could be. It could be. Um, meanwhile, at X-Mansion, Cerebro detects a new mutant. Uh. Very similar to ROM-17. Uh, Storm is fixing her attic from X-Men 143. Apparently only one plant survived, and it's taken her weeks to... Uh, scrub the floors and walls and ceiling but her she's finally rid the room of the physical and psychic stench left by the monster sprite fought her last christmas Mm. the professor calls her and the rest of the x-men to uh i don't know go on a mission and uh they're still they're just like in this issue of x-men they're still fixing up the uh the danger room no okay interesting kind of ties to that um, we go back to Spider Woman, who's at a uh, she she detects a Jesse, Jessica Drew is at a party, uh, and she detects a sonic scream that is setting off all the bur- burglar alarms in the city. But she is able to track it to the San Francisco Mint, and uh, she is able to sneak up on Black Tom and knock him out. And that's when she encounters Siren who is dressed like Banshee, and she wonders if she is related to Banshee or if it's an homage or something like that. Uh, they fight, and Spider-Man man, or Spider-Woman manages to win, but then Juggernaut shows up and knocks Spider-Woman almost to unconsciousness, and the villains leave with the vibranium, and the cops show up and threaten to arrest Spider-Woman. Oh, no. Why? And, so uh, why, why does Siren have a... Sean Cassidy costume on if she doesn't know about him and he doesn't know about her. They, uh, Tom maybe made it for her. <laughs> like, in case anybody sees you, I would like them to make a connection to you and Banshee. Exactly. Seems like a terrible, terrible plan. Okay, anyways. So, I don't know, maybe she's wearing uh, Sean. Maybe she knows about Sean, but Sean doesn't know about her. Okay. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, the bad guys escape. The cops think that it's Spider-Woman, and that's where we end. It's next issue, Spider-Woman, Criminal at Large. And uh, and the, and, it, and there promises to be some more X-Men. Oh, fantastic. So that's, those are all the other issues that came out this month. Oh, man. 1981. All right, then. Well. Bam Shazam. You have anything else to add to this one? Uh, this was a scary issue. Uh, good night, listener. Until next time, the danger room is closed. Mm-hmm.